0: Welcome back to our study through Colossians. Today we're going to be in chapter 2, so go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 2 of Colossians. My name is Gregory Baines. I'm on staff here at First Baptist Keller, and I'm uh, blessed to be able to, to bring our lesson today. As you're turning to Colossians 2, I'm going to give a little recap, uh, intro of, of what we've covered so far in the book, some of the background. I remember Epaphras was the man that heard the gospel from Paul and then responded in faith, believed, went back to his hometown and shared the gospel, and, and churches were planted in that area, of the Lycus Valley. And um, Epaphras was a, a church planner in the in the early church, and thankful for, for him and what he did in his example that we see. Sometime after the church was planted, some teaching started to creep in, a Colossian heresy that was made up of uh, both Jewish and Gentile roots, probably the Gentiles with the philosophy, the the, the knowledge that they wanted to have a higher knowledge and, and thought that it was christ plus knowledge for salvation and the jews who thought it was christ plus their tradition for salvation and and this is the heresy as as far as we know the elements of it that paul is addressing as he writes this letter to the colossian church epaphras traveled the over 1300 mile journey to rome to tell paul about this and get some help on that and um, paul writes back and addresses the supremacy of christ and the sufficiency of christ in salvation In our last lesson, Brother Keith talked to us about Paul's joy in the midst of suffering for the church, and today we're going to see how Paul continues to address the heresy um, of the Colossian church. So open your Bibles. If you're not there yet, Colossians 2, and let's get started. We're going to read verses 4 through 15. Verse 4 says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now having been built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude." See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that is true and good and right. Thank you uh, for this letter to this church that we can learn from and pull from. And and today, I pray that as we look at your word, your spirit would guide us and and lead us and uh, you would keep us from being taken captive through uh, philosophies and empty deception. Instead, we look to Christ. And as we study that today, Lord, would you just guide our time in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go back and look at verse 4 says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. What, it, what is the this that he is saying? Paul begins with, I say this, and what is he referring to here? What is the this? He is referring to his struggle on their behalf that he just mentioned in verses 1 through 3. Let's, let's read that together. For I want you to know, this is Paul, how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for, for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Uh, Paul is reminding them of the struggle that he's had for them for the gospel, and, and that's why he is saying this. He wants them to know that he is for them and with them in this fight and that they are not alone and that it's for the gospel that they're struggling together verse 5 for even though i am absent in body nevertheless i am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith therefore as you have received christ jesus the lord so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 5, Paul rejoices that this heresy hasn't overwhelmed the church yet. This is a good thing. Even though I'm absent, nevertheless, I'm with you rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. So this has not taken so deep a root yet that it has ruined the testimony of the church or their theology, and and Paul's thankful for that. He then emphasizes to them the importance of Christ, just as he did in, in in verse 1, he talks about he Christ being the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and him all things hold together. Paul is again reminding them of, of Christ's supremacy. His instruction to them is to walk in, be rooted in, and built up in Christ. And, and this is the key to not being taken captive through the persuasive argument or the empty philosophy that's deceptive. Here is here's the key: walk and be rooted in Christ. Well, how then is the question? There's the phrase "having been rooted, firmly rooted." That's a that's a past tense. This has already happened. So, at conversion, we are rooted in Christ. When we are born again, this is what happens. And, and the only way to be born again is is through the gospel, right? Christ's work on the cross. Um, man is sinful, God is holy, Jesus came and and died and took our place, the substitutionary death. If we um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, we will be saved. And this is the gospel, and and these believers have done that. They have received the message with joy and and now are firmly rooted and established in Christ, so they have a foundation that, that should not be shaken. So unless you've been born again unless you've received the gospel. There's no way to be rooted in Christ. But once you have, there's still some danger to you here. And this is why Paul is warning the Colossian church in verse 8. It says, "...see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ." So the question for us then must be, what are these philosophies that are taking us us captive or could take us captive? And Paul gives a few characteristics here of these philosophies. One, they're they're empty. They're not substantive. Um, Two, they're false. They're deceptive. Three, they originate in the tradition of sinful man. They're not from God. They're not divine. And four, they're founded in the elementary principles of this world. So in all these characteristics of the philosophy that um, is a danger to, to take Christians captive, there is a response of Christ that is much greater, right? So we see that these philosophies are empty. Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form. He is a foundation that we are built upon and rooted in. These philosophies are false, and Christ is the word of truth. He cannot lie. He is always true. These philosophies originate with the traditions of sinful man. Christ has no beginning, He has always existed. He is eternal. And then we see the elementary principles of the world here. Now, there's kind of two possible meanings for these things. One, the, the phrase literally means laid out in a row, and it's often used to, to reference the alphabet. It's so basic, elementary, and it's laid out in an order. Um, so this phrase could mean the basic ideas of man-made religion, the elementary principles of the world, this idea that you can work to God and, and all this stuff. is a misunderstanding of what's reality. Uh, believers are not bound by these childish and basic ideas. Um, and I think this is probably the, the more likely understanding of this, this verse as in light of Colossians 2.20, which says, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principle, principles of the world, why is, if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, all that. So I, th- I think that's probably the, the right understanding. But there's this other option. Um, could mean the elemental spirits of this world. Astrology was dominant in the ancient world. Ancient world. Everyone consulted the stars, all the leaders, even the great like men of science. Astrology was the science, and that's what these Gentiles probably dealt with before they came to know Christ. Whatever the meaning of this phrase, elementary, elementary principles of the world... Paul is clear that Christ is much greater than any of these principles. And, and the contrast is they're according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then verse nine goes in to say, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So this is, these are the characteristics of this philosophy. And Paul is very clear that Christ is much more valuable and much more steady. Um, so for us, how do we identify these philosophies today? The uh, the simple answer and the question we must ask is, Is what do they do with Christ? Do they have a right view of Christ? When we're confronted with a new idea, something that, that claims to be divine, the question we must ask, well, who is Jesus in this system of thought? And we can look at all the isms, Mormonism, Islam, Judaism, Catholic, Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, the list could go on. Um, none of them have a right view of Jesus and his work on the cross, and, and this is the difference here. This is a trigger for us to say, no, no, no. This is this is false. This is not true. Um, this is also true of those in the Word of Faith movement um, who think that Jesus is there to make them them healthy and and wealthy. And that is not who Christ is. He is the King. Now, all of those philosophies are pretty clear to believers who, who have a little bit of maturity in the faith and won't be taken captive by those. But there's there's a few more philosophies that are much more subtle, and, and we want to talk about a couple of those today. The, the first one is moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, that's a mouthful, so we're going to unpack that phrase, moralistic We exist to be good, nice, and tolerant. Good people go to heaven. This is the view of this philosophy. Hey, you know, you just do good, be nice to people, be kind, all that kind of stuff. Therapeutic. We exist to feel good. So feeling good about ourselves, about life, this is the purpose that we're here for. So be a good person, feel good about yourself. And then deism. God exists to make us nice and feel good. So God exists. Um, We're supposed to be good people. God wants us to feel good and and be nice. This is a worldview of a lot of people. Um, There was a study done in in 2005 that uh, this term kind of came out of. Now, it's not an organized religion. Um, It was just reflective of a study of teenagers in 2005, as I said, and the researchers found that moral listic therapeutic deism and here's a quote from the study is not a religion of repentance from sin of living as a servant of a sovereign divinity rather what appears to be the actual dominant religion among US teenagers is centrally about feeling good happy secure at peace it is about attaining subjective well-being being able to resolve problems and getting along amiably with other people God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. So this is moralistic, therapeutic deism. God exists to make me happy, to feel good, um, and that I need to just be a good person to other people and it's very very subtle and it was in 2005 a majority of teenagers even that grew up in Christian evangelical churches felt this way and now those teenagers are in their late 30s and 40s right and and this thought process if not dealt with is a cancer and a poison to the church and for some of us we may not even be aware that it's infected our minds. This thinking is so appealing because it it doesn't require you to leave your church or convert to a different religion. Just be nice and acknowledge God exists. It's easy to come to God to deal with our problems, but difficult to make Him the Lord of our life. And, And that's who He is, to submit to His authority. So, if that's a thinking that has cropped up in, in your mind, where, where you view God as kind of your divine butler or your, your therapist that's just there to help you with your problems, repent of that. He is the Lord of all. Christ is supreme and sufficient and is worthy of your life. Um, so give it to him. The, the other philosophy I want to talk about too, kind of made up a term working with some of the guys in the office and brainstorming. We're going to say red herringism or deflectionism now a red herring is a logical fallacy where in the midst of an argument someone will will Throw this idea in there to distract, to create a new argument about something that's not related to the original argument at all. And a lot of people do this when it when it comes to like a counseling time. You're you're talking and say, hey, what what's going on in your life? What what sin is happening? And they're like, well, I really want to want to talk to you about um, eschatology and the signs and wonders, or I want to talk about um, the nephilim, or how old is the age of the earth, or something that while it's important for us to know and understand as believers what the scripture says and has to teach about everything, um, when we're dealing with Christ being Lord of our life, we don't want to distract with, with these kind of sub-issues. The the gospel is the key here, and so there's um, an issue in a lot of us that's, that's very, very, very hard to detect, and we, we love knowledge, and we love to be um, filled with knowledge, and we think that our knowledge somehow equals spiritual maturity. And the Bible is clear that that true knowledge leads to obedience. And the mark of maturity in, in a believer is not knowledge of information, but, but knowledge that leads to this surrender and this obedience to the Lord. And this is what Paul was talking about in, in verses 9 through 11 when he praise for these believers that they would be filled with the knowledge of god's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work when we are truly filled with the knowledge of god's will we will walk in obedience Uh, and this is something we say a lot good theology good knowledge of understanding of who god is is leads to good doxology obedience and worship in our lives so these are some philosophies that are dangerous to us, the big ones, the clear ones, the Mormonism, the Buddhism, all that stuff. But there's also the subtleties, the moral thera- moralistic therapeutic deism, the deflectionism, the red herringism, where you don't want to get to that Jesus being Lord part of your life. You just want to talk about abstract things. And 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 this is a, a danger um, that Paul even warned the young pastor, Timothy, about... Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. we We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 here. Verse 4 says, He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind. And deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So, so Paul is addressing here to Timothy hey, there's these men who are false teachers. All they want to do is, is talk about these details that aren't core and central and, and divide over these things versus the truth of the gospel and what is um, true to the message of Christ, which is the gospel. And, and while it's important for us to pursue knowledge and to understand the full counsel of God, don't let that be an excuse for us not obeying or think that because you have a lot of knowledge, you are walking in maturity. Instead, submit uh, to the truth of God's word and grow in it. Um, Paul gives that strong warning warning to Timothy as well at the end of this chapter six, verse twenty, it says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the, the faith. Grace be with you. So for us, we, we want to heed that warning as well. As Paul warned the Colossian church and warned Timothy, see to it that no one takes us captive. Um, that is a prayer for us. So be on, on the alert. Um, ask the Lord to show you any way where your thinking is wrong, and um, then believe what is true. So don't be taken captive. Believe what is true. Paul's going to lay out the spiritual reality of what Christ has done in His work on the cross and justific- justification. So let's read verses nine through fifteen again, and, and we'll look we'll look at that. Um, Verse 9, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Uh, Let's stop right there. Christ has made us complete in the internal sense, right? We can't accomplish that on our own. Christ has done the work. We cannot complete ourselves, and nothing is lacking in what Christ has done, that word fullness there for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form this is an echo from chapter one right um let's look at that 119 for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him jesus is god and He is the fullness of god in human form so christ being full of the deity of god that dwells in bodily form then makes us complete and the word there means to fill us it's this idea of Christ being full, and now we're filled with Christ, um, but there is a separation there. Let's not get confused. We are not divine in nature, but we are filled now and made complete, made made whole. Um, once Christ has done that, we are now his, right? We go back to that rooted idea. We've been rooted in him, to be built up in him. And this is a, something that's been done. And We call this the doctrine of, of justification and, and Paul's gonna lay out more clearly what that looks like very explicitly. But, but Christ has made us complete. This is where Paul takes some time to explain What has happened for those who have been born again in justification, verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We were stripped of our old selves. That's the the word circumcision there. That's what that means. It's cut off, stripped from us, becoming like Christ in his death, and buried with him in baptism, we were raised up now through faith. By the nature of our dead state, we see that it is only the power of God that could raise us up to new life. This is not a power that can be accessed through knowledge or ritual. It is the gift of God received through faith. And that's what the Colossians needed to be reminded of, that you were buried with Christ in baptism, and then he raised you up to life. He has done the work there. And verse 13 continues this idea. When you were dead in your trespasses, uh, your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Death to life, it's a huge change. It's something only God can do. Second Corinthians 5.17 echoes this idea, makes it very clear. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is what God does. So if there's not a time in your life where the old has passed away and the new has come, you don't know Christ. You have not received and you are not rooted in and you will be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. But that doesn't have to be the case for you. Today could be the day of salvation. Repent, believe, the truth, be buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk um, in a new life with God by his power. Now, verse 14, Paul gets very explicit. This is really cool, this, this picture here. Um, verse 14, having, well, let's go back to 13, the last part. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He canceled or blotted out our debt, and nailed it to the cross. In case there was any doubt, Paul is clear that Christ's work on the cross is the only way that a sinner can be forgiven of their sin. And, and when they are forgiven, it is total. It is complete. It is done. And this is the doctrine of justification. Once for all, Christ laid down his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin totally. Um, Christ doesn't have to keep dying. His sacrifice was sufficient. It is good enough um, to pay for all our sin. And then there's a victory here in verse 15 that we see. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So this is this is God the Father has disarmed the rulers and authorities through Christ, through the work on the cross. Um, the idea here is of a conquering general or emperor or um, coming through the streets with their defeated foe, On like a parade, and and they're embarrassed and stripped and made a public spectacle display of. So the enemy here, these rulers and authorities, which are our spiritual enemies, Satan, demons, aren't destroyed yet. Their defeat has occurred, and their ultimate destruction is certain and sure. It's coming. Um, So we need to remember that there isn't some kind of great cosmic struggle from two equal forces, right? Christ has already triumphed over them. There is no power of sin and and these spiritual forces over the believer anymore. Um, Christ has justified us and he is working to sanctify us, make us more like him. And one day we will be free from the very presence of sin and these um, powers and authorities because Christ has defeated them and triumphed over them through his death and resurrection. What a great truth, what a reminder that we need, um, just like this church needed, so that we don't fall into these philosophies and, that are empty and, and not life-giving. So our application today, the, f- the first question is, have you been rooted in Christ? Do you know the Lord? Have you been born again? Um, if not, please call our church office. Talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to speak to you about that. Number two, have you been taken captive, believer? Or are you in danger of being taken captive by these empty philosophies? Is there something in your thinking that when, when we talked about it today, you said, no, I, I think that way? Um, if so, repent, pray, be conformed to the truth of God's word, be transformed by it, and um, take some time this week and ask the Lord, as we talked about, these things are subtle. Um, so we need to to check daily. This is why it's so important to read God's Word daily to see um, if there's any thought from this world that has um, creeped in and changed our view or, of who God is. And if so, let's conform to what the Word says and not trust in ourselves for that. And then our, our last point here is to remember the spiritual reality of Christ's justifying work on the cross and to praise Him for it. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. He's triumphed over them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word that is encouraging to us, challenging to us. Um, Lord, we don't want to be taken captive. We don't want to fall into our view of, of who you are, God. Instead, would our view conform to who you say you are, who you've revealed yourself to be? And I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters listening to this, God, that we would love you and know you through a study of your word. And Lord, I ask for anyone who doesn't know you, God, would they be convicted of their sin? Would your spirit draw them to yourself? Would they repent and believe and follow you forever? Lord, we are so thankful for what you've done. The the work of Christ, as we've talked about uh, today, that we were dead and you made us alive. We've been baptized into Christ. We are in him. We are secure now. You have done the work. You hold us, God, and and that our sin that is great has been forgiven. You have uh, blotted it out and nailed it to the cross and, and no longer hold us accountable for it. And that is such a great thing for us we are so thankful we praise you for your grace and mercy toward us Um, when we were dead you made us alive we thank you for that lord would you remind us of that daily would we never lose um, sight or love for or um, i guess an an, an enamoring by the the gospel keep us um, close to it help us to to love you and love it in jesus name amen